You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and... Uh, I teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just – you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is – and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did. Spirit is is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby and that baby's, you know, two months old or five months old or 10 months old and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a a guy or a gal or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body and my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling 
you know, body, mind, or spirit, then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's, it thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. You remember the Dust Bowl? You know, in the Midwest. Um, The Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean... A problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and, and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope. And he he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? 
Um, you also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because, or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope, right? The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, We've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. (laughs) And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the You have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words, steward, agent, options, right? Pathways and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just, let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with thousands of years of civilization having passed in China, you know, there has been many, many, many lessons learned and a lot of insight on how life and how to live a a more fulfilling life. So how come it's taking on 
such a powerful push here in the United States and especially now. In fact, uh, one of the most popular classes taught at Harvard is taught by our next guest, um, Michael Pewitt, and uh, Professor Pewitt's course at Harvard. They're very popular. In fact, some wonderful articles have come out um, about these classes. And uh, Professor Pewitt and uh, journalist Christine Gross-Lowe are um, joining us now to talk about their work and their book. They have a, a, a book um, called The Good Life. And um, or sorry, the path. What Chinese philosophers can teach us about the good life, and they're here today to walk us through their learnings and uh, their lessons there. So we appreciate it again, Professor Pewitt and Christine Grosslow. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it's an honor thank to be you. here. Talk to us about uh, Professor Pewitt. Let's, I guess, start with you. What is what's the big push now? Why why are um, the lessons of China and Asia, why are they becoming so popular in the West today? I think there's a strong perception at the moment that we're hitting a crisis, that for many decades now we've been telling each generation to look within, try to find yourself, find your true self, and then live your life trying to be authentic and sincere to who you truly are. And that's the way to live your life on your own terms, to be who you were meant to be. And Part of what I think people are finding now, especially with this current generation, is that a lot of these ideas are perhaps even restraining us. And the students are looking for other ideas, for Hmm. different visions of how to grow as a human being, as opposed to simply being um, sort of restrained or even constrained to the vision of who they think they might be at age 15, 20, (laughs) etc. It's really true. We have our kids trying to figure out who they are, and is that... I mean, are they are they on the right track, or it seems like sometimes we th- we teach that uh, Chinese culture and those philosophers would teach us more about you know isolation, maybe the Buddhist monk that sat up on top of the mountain in solitude um, to find oneself. But uh, talk to us, Christine, about that. Is are we off in what these these philosophers taught, or or what really did they teach? I think that's, I mean, that's such a great example of a sort of Western romanticized and misunderstanding, you know, a a misunderstanding of what um, many Asian philosophies were about. And it's also very telling that, um, you know, someone meditating on a mountaintop by himself, that that is the figure that we have um, taken to represent um, what Asian philosophy is about. Really, so many of these philosophies, especially the ones that we talk about in the past, are about um, you know, engaging with the world, not retreating from it. And I think that the fact that you know, that these are that the isolated figure on the mountaintop is the sort of um, predominant image that we have of Asian philosophy is problematic. And it also tells us a lot about what we in the West um, valorize and um, you know I think that this this is not in my opinion a very good thing I think that um, for us to teach that you need to sort of focus on yourself and retreat from the world and that it's all about you is in part what has led to such a cultural crisis of values and um, these ideas that talk about the fact that none of us is alone in the world that we are always engaging with others that we cultivate when we cultivate ourselves um, to be the best that we can be in relation to other people. I mean, that's not all that they were talking about, but that, that's a, you know, certainly a part that we do talk about in our book. 
then I think that that is um, that points the way toward a better society, a better world, and a better self as well. It's so true. You almost can see many of uh, many of us in the United States. We might love our own little mountain where we can go pontificate and yell all of our you know beliefs and philosophies. Um, but as we've been talking about so much on my show recently, in fact, even just last hour, our need to our need to also uh, understand the whole and the bigger picture of that we are you know that we are in a relationship with everyone else in this world that's critical as well do you see is that professor pewitt is that why you have so many of the students there at harvard uh, clamoring to get in your class i think that's absolutely the case i think this is a generation that's been raised very much in the ideology that you've been mentioning you know everyone on their own mountain strive to be your best self and and ignore the world around you and i think the current generation is realizing it's an ideology that's failing them hmm. and exactly as you said they are now realizing that no the way you can become a great human being is precisely through the relationships you build and by building a flourishing world around one one can flourish but of course everyone else flourishes too and it's really by the work we do building great relationships building great worlds around us that is really our, our life's goal. Mm. It's so true. And it's it, sadly, we seem to only know kind of the philosophers by their, you know, trite little phrases. They're not trite, but they're, 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 they're you know, perfect meme length phrase. But they didn't teach by just a sentence, right? They d- didn't they teach? How did they teach? Yes, you're exactly right. I mean, we hear these little, as you said, meme-like statements from a Confucius, and we hear a sentence here and a sentence there. But actually, what they really taught was about daily life. And what really intrigued them is the ways in just the very ways we interact with people on a daily basis in our very mundane activities. That's the place, they say, where either we can become stuck in, in patterns and ruts that hold us back, that hurt our relationships, or conversely, it's where we can grow as human beings building great relationships, working with those around us, slowly becoming over time and really training ourselves to become over time a wonderful human being in the sense of being able to actually respond to those around us and, and help everyone around us. Uh, and we need, to, we need to learn about it. We need to get it out there. Christine, how did you uh, meet Professor Pewitt? How did, how did the journalist and the professor get together to start writing the book? Oh, well, let's see. I um, I actually did a doctorate at Harvard myself um, years ago, and it was in East Asian history. So I knew of Professor Pugh. We overlapped at Harvard for a little bit. Um, but then I went, uh, I graduated, I decided not to go into academia. And, um, but, you know, as I became a freelancer, and as I, um, you know, I was living in Cambridge, and I was hearing about this course at Harvard that was famous, um, that was growing and growing. And I reached out to um, Professor Pewitt and asked if I could sit in on the course. And then I decided to write an article about it um, that was in the Atlantic. And, um, you know, that article got so much attention right away that we um, we decided to write a book together to bring it out to a much wider audience. That's great. So the book, The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life, is that the content from the classroom? Well, it's the 
content from the it's not it's definitely not all the content whatsoever yeah. um the the course is is quite long and in fact the second half of the course focuses on um political theory and we um we focus in the book a little bit more on the first half of the course um which is um the the entire course the official name of it is um Chinese political and ethical theory so um you know we focus on the things that people can do in their everyday lives to become good human beings um, and touch a little bit on some of the issues that come up in the rest of the course. But no, it would have been impossible. Um, there's just, you know, there, there is, we, we would like to think of this book as a sort of supplement, but certainly not a replacement. Um, there's nothing like being in the course itself. Yeah, right. To really experience the, you know, his Professor Pewitt's dynamic lecturing style and the teachings of these philosophers. That's fantastic. I mean, really, this is um, the, more and more. It seems like we are we're wanting to kind of dive into to the excellent professor on a campus in any location that has kind of mastered a certain subject, and especially the way in teaching people. Uh, I, I mean, I, you got to get it on film, Michael. Let's get going. Let's get it out there. <laughs> Actually, I would love to. Yes, I, I think getting these ideas out to as many people as possible is just so important. Oh. These ideas are extraordinary. Yeah, um, let's do this. I want to get into the ideas and and even maybe have you run through some of the the great misunderstandings that we have uh, with with the Chinese philosophers. Um, You've already talked about one. Let's take a break, come back, and continue the discussion, and you can just start walking us through some of your lessons. Start teaching us, and and both of you share with us uh, your, your lessons, your learnings, and how it's impacted you. We'll be back, folks, with Dr. Michael Pewitt and uh, actually Dr. Christine Gross-Lowe as well, um, two uh, wonderful uh, resources for all of us about the path, what Chinese philosophers can teach us about the good life. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Dr. Michael Pewitt uh, and uh, Dr. Christine Grosslow. I don't know that she wants to be called doctor yet, or still, um, but uh, they're both on the line with us, and they're talking about their new book, The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life. The origin of the material uh, obviously began thousands of years ago um, back in China, but uh, is being taught in a class at Harvard by Dr. Michael Pewitt, and um, pr- uh, Professor Pewitt is a very popular uh, professor there. He's also the Walter C. Klein Professor of Chinese History and the Chair of the Committee on the Study of Religion at Harvard. Christine Gross-Lowe is a journalist, author of several books, and also received her Ph.D. from Harvard as well. Thank you both for being with us again. Oh, it's an honor. Thank Thanks. you. Teach us what we—it um, seems like, as I was reading the article in The Guardian— about forget mindfulness, stop trying to find yourself and start faking it. It seems like we really misunderstand um, a lot of the great uh, lessons of these philosophers like Confucius and, um, and others. So teach us what are some of the things that we misunderstand but would be so advantageous if we could bring them into our lives here in the Western culture? 
Absolutely. So just on the points you mentioned, we often will say to ourselves, well, my goal is to look within, find myself, be true to my, myself, and that's the way I live my life on my terms. And often we think of Chinese philosophy, and Confucius in particular, as sort of the antithesis of this, someone who just says, well, do lots of rituals, and presumably in rituals we're trained how to behave in life. And we think this is a bad thing, because it's it's means we're learning from rituals how to be, as opposed to looking within. So here's the intriguing thing. Confucius closely do rituals, but his understanding of rituals is very different from our own. What he will say is, we as human beings are messy, and we tend to fall into kind of patterns and ruts with each other, where I will draw out negative um, emotions from those around me by doing things often that I'm not aware of, and they will do the same. And over time, these ruts can kind of harden, which is why entire relationships can be defined for years, even decades, in these very negative emotions of angers and jealousies and resentments. Now, the reason Confucius would say do rituals is rituals are designed to break you from that. And what you're doing in a ritual is, for a brief moment, you become a different person, relating to those around you in a different way, drawing out different emotions, and by doing that, you're slowly training yourself to break from these ruts that hold us back. Mm. So the goal of rituals actually is to, to use one of Confucius's terms, to overcome the self, the self begin, being again defined as these ruts, and slowly work on the process toward becoming a good, humane person. Holy cow, because there's a lot of research on rituals in marriage as a tool yeah. to reunite and strengthen the marriage, probably because it takes us out of our selfish self and into our kind of intentional selflessness. That is precisely right. Precisely. That is we cool. We look down on rituals, but yes, it's, we have tons of evidence saying, actually, it's the exact opposite. Rituals, as you said, break us from the lesser sides of ourselves and allow us to grow as human beings with those around us. Yeah, and again, but we, I, I think that's it. We, we think uh, he was getting into the ritual to just get more into himself. Exactly. But it's the opposite. Precisely the opposite. He's it's breaking you, himself. Yeah, indeed. Perfectly put. Is it not breaking about the, the self side. then? Is it? I mean, it's interesting. Um, talk to me about that, Christine, because is that is, – are we not to find ourself in ourself? Well, you know, I think that what I um, when 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 Michael was talking about, you know, thinking of ourselves as messy selves, not coherent true selves. Yeah. There's a lot to this um, because we are, if you think about it, we are all different at every moment. We um, we are different with one person, different in this situation, that situation. Different sides of ourselves come out. Different aspects of ourselves come out, and um, it's you know the idea is that it's better to think of yourself as a messy self bumping up against um, other messy selves out there in the world because that is a better way to sort of work on yourself and your reactions, your mm. dispositions, is that rather than thinking of yourself as a true self, which, um, you know, once you define yourself that way, it's kind of like taking a, a snapshot of yourself at a moment in time, and that makes it really difficult to grow if you're you're defining and labeling yourself as, you know, a hothead or I'm the jealous type or, you know, I, I'm a hard worker, et cetera. I mean, all these things are true in one moment of our lives, but it doesn't have to be what defines us as a whole. Hmm. No, and you can totally see that. I mean, this idea that 
um, you almost need to be bumping into people, messy self after messy self. But then I guess yeah. if you could fall back into your rituals, then um, yeah. then you might, I guess, learn how to handle those right. different... You can work. You can work on your reactions, your, um, you know, and, and sort of keep cultivating yourself so that eventually your best self, your best, you know, your best reaction is what comes forward, not the sort of... I mean, if we were always acting according to our base feelings, our first reaction, you know, the world would be a, a very unpleasant place. And indeed, many people do react um, sort of spontaneously from just how they think they feel in the moment. Yeah. I mean, some people do that and they even run for president, <laughs> hypothetically. Um, talk about uh, – talk about. so is that what is meant by authentic self is when you are more aligned – to your virtuous side, I guess your healthier you, your higher purpose. Yeah, I mean, they would say think of the self as what we're building over the course of a lifetime. So it's not what you happen to be at a current moment. As Christine said, it's not the sort of thing where you can say, oh, I just am the sort of person who has a bad temper, who does X, Y, and Z, but that's just me, and I should love myself for who I am. On the contrary, they would say, no, 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 you build a self over a lifetime, and you build a self either badly by falling into these ruts and not growing, or you build a great self by growing through these relationships, training yourself to sense how you can help those around you, how to care for those around you, and over time you become, if you through this training, a person who's incredibly well, sort of just incredibly good at sensing people around you, working to help those around you, and that's a self you're creating over time. Mm. And you're, I guess, allowing that allows you to forgive yourself because when you're blowing it and you've just messed it up, okay, just turn back and continue your progress. Absolutely. I mean, the view is this is a lifelong process that's hmm. never ending. We're just getting ever better at doing it. And therefore, as you said, we're failing constantly, <laughs> constantly. Yeah. And yet the failure is part of what you're doing. If you're not striving to push yourself out of these ruts and grow, you won't fail, but then you'll become complacent and dangerously unable to work with those around you. If you're trying to grow, you'll fail constantly. But as you said, through those failures, you'll continue to grow as a human being. Hmm. What about all of these – and I maybe it was just even racist. I don't know. But uh, examples where you know somebody would go to the master, the Zen master, and the Zen master would not teach them because they weren't ready to learn. Um, um, I don't know. I always think of Kung Fu that I watched growing up and the guy was not ready, but he – I don't know. But – <laughs> Where did where's the idea? Because to me, this teaches some pretty powerful principles of discipline. But is that part really of uh, Chinese philosophy? It's a great question, and you're right. This is one of our big stereotypes. Yeah, and it's very much the opposite. The okay, is all of us are equally messy creatures at birth, <laughs> um, right. and therefore in danger of falling into these ruts, which is our, our huge danger as human beings, and then become complacent in those ruts, but equally capable of growing as human beings. And one of the things they're deeply committed to is this is equally true of all of us. We're equally messy creatures, equally filled with dangers, but equally filled with great potential. So we don't have to play, which is weird, because in the United States, we talk more about start from your strength, 
but you keep mentioning our messiness. So kind of start from your messiness. Yes. I mean, we think this is, of course, a great way to get ahead. Play to your strengths, recognize your weaknesses, but then avoid things that, that your weaknesses would hold you back in and focus on the things that you're really good at doing. Now, of course, they would say the exact opposite. Things you think you're good at doing, it may, in fact, be something you've become good at doing, but those are just certain patterns you fall into. And by the same token, things you think you're bad at doing are, again, simply patterns and ruts you've fallen into. So they would say intentionally train yourself across the board, but very, therefore very much including what you think you're bad at. Actually, that precisely is, is the area where you could actually open up things you would not even be able to imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Christine, talk about mindfulness because it seems like the uh, everybody today is talking about mm-hmm. mindfulness. And yeah. and yet, I guess Chinese philosophers weren't necessarily about mindfulness. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that the one overlapping sort of concept would be that of sort of being attentive to what you are doing or what I mean, in mindfulness, it's what you're feeling and observing, you know, observing your feelings. Um, but I think that what makes this more dynamic and engaged than that, which um, the the current definition of mindfulness as it is in in our culture and, you know, and as it is popularized, um, I think can lead people to the danger of complacency and lack of engagement, of acceptance, of accepting all their feelings as being okay, of accepting everything as being okay, and sort of using mindfulness as a tool to come to a place of peace. Um, and, you know, there's there's some merit in this as long as it doesn't make you too complacent, too accepting to the point where you don't want to cultivate yourself, you don't want to grow, and you don't want to engage. And so the philosophers that we talk about in our book really have very practical, doable, um, you know, lessons about how to engage with the world in every moment. And at every moment, you can um, work on becoming a better person who will make the world a better place, um, hmm. starting with people around you. Yeah. it's um, it, it just seems like this theme of experiencing, learning as you go, changing, growing, like with a demand to grow, right? I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like there, there's not just, don't just float through life. I mean, <laughs> become a change agent and start mm-hmm. with yourself and then work with other people to create growth. Right. Powerful. Exactly. What, um, is, and we'll, we'll give you both a chance to do it. What, what stands out for you, Michael, um, what is one of your favorite lessons, the lesson, too, that you feel like you most bring home to your, your family, your life, your personal life? What, what lessons are most, you know, into your heart? Without question, I would say the notion that in practice we are capable of becoming such extraordinarily better human beings than we think. And that's fine to say in the abstract, but what's really powerful is when you start doing what they're advocating, these little rituals in which we're training ourselves to become better, it is amazing how quickly you begin experiencing the world differently, opening up your perspectives, and becoming more able to work with people, develop better relationships. And it's something that works incredibly well in practice. Mm-hmm. And I found it incredibly moving. It's such a push against so many of our assumptions about the self and so many of our assumptions about just accepting yourself for who you are. And you realize very quickly in practice 
that no, no, we are capable of being so much more than we think we are capable of. Yeah, and it's I guess too. It's so it's spiritual, yet intuitive. It was so intuitive they they just discerned it. They were I mean I'm sure highly 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 gifted people, but um, they also just intuited the the change that needed to be there and keep it simple. Yes, I think part of what's powerful about it, as I tell my students, is we often do little bits of what they're talking about, so we kind of intuitively get what they're talking about. We just don't do it very well because we're so committed to this view that, oh, I just am who I am, and I love myself for who I am. And when, on the contrary, you really start doing what they're advocating, in other words, more of the little things we kind of know but just don't really do, but if you really do them, you realize that that their vision of the self is not only much more powerful than our own, um, they're really onto something profound. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Christine, what was your biggest lesson? What stands out most for you personally? Well, um, so I have four children, um, four children ranging in age from 6 to 15. And um, I think that what what really hit home for me was the idea of, you know, we there is this mantra of self-acceptance and then playing to your strengths and teaching your children to sort of figure out who they are and what they're going to be able to do best in life. And and I think that this really sort of turned all of that on its head for me. And um, now when I talk to them and what I try to teach them is to not think about who they are, but to, to choose to do things precisely because it's not them, mm. because, precisely because it doesn't fit their image of who they are, because I think that when they you know, when they do that, that offers more opportunity from breaking from the self, overcoming the self, as um, Confucius said, and and then growing from there. Mm. That's that's it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? But do, mm-hmm. because exactly. we want to probably protect our egoic self, and instead, mm-hmm. this helps to break it. Well, beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful stuff. And so, I'm assuming that the book, The Path: What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life, is that a great place for just us lay folk to start? Absolutely, yes. No, I we we try to pick the very best of everything that has inspired Michael's students, inspired him and myself, and and write them up in the book. So I, I do think it's a great place to start. Beautiful. Well, I highly suggest it. Um, Dr. Michael Pewitt, uh, Dr. Christine Grosslow, thank you both so much for spending this thank time you. with us. It's been thank such an honor. Thank you, you so bet. much. And beautiful lessons for all of us to see the good in the world. And remember, that light and goodness is everywhere, folks. It's everywhere. It's been in the, every culture. It's somewhere there in the hearts and the minds of all people. That's what we want everyone to remember Go check out the book, the book, The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, we're going to track down one of our producers who is in Cape Cod somewhere running a Ragnar race. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, this just in, uh, in Cape Cod, you may be wondering what's going on. Why are there people uh, running all over your little, uh, what do we call that, a peninsula? Here's the problem. Because there's a Ragnar race there, folks. And so you're going to have vans decorated in all sorts of uh, weird ways with a lot of sleepy runners inside. And we happen to just have one of our producers. Uh, Kaylee Danes, also known as Kim Shi or K 
Kamehameha Danes uh, is one of the runners for a Ragnar team, and we wanted to check in with her and see if she's still alive. Kaylee, are you there? I am. How, how are you? Now, Is it, let me get this straight. You're actually not running. You were just asked to drive the van. Is that correct? <laughs> I am running. I haven't done any yet, but I will be. You, you have yet to run? Yeah, my first leg probably won't be till like 5 p.m. tonight. <laughs> really? Okay, so let's get this straight. The Ragnar race, Ragnar is a brand of yeah. of races, and they hold them around the country where there's about, I think you guys are going to run about 192 miles total. Yep. With about 12 members of your team, and you just keep rotating through the different runners. Is that right? Yep. We have two vans and half the team in one, half in the other, and we're just like kind of leapfrogging with vans and runners and exchanging and yeah. Now, Kaylee, do they know that you don't run? (laughs) They think I run. I'm fooling them all. Yeah. It looks like, as I look this up, um, you're going to be running the eighth leg? Yep. What leg are they on right now? Um, I'm not sure. They're probably on, like, runner three. I'm not sure. Okay, just not to create pressure for you. Yeah, you may want to pay attention to that. As it gets closer to okay. my leg, I'll start paying attention. The and first fan f- hasn't finished yet. So. Okay, okay. Your first run will be 4.86 miles. It's a moderate yeah. run. Your second run will be 5.57 miles. And then your yeah. third run, if you actually make it that long, <laughs> will be 2.3 miles. Piece of cake. Piece of cake. Why? Yeah, that last one. There's one question we all have um, back here at the base. Why? Why are you doing this? Why do 12 people gather to go run 192 miles? It's just fun. The adrenaline. And um, I don't know. My brother-in-law asked me to do it, and we're doing it with a bunch of our friends just for fun. It will be a great story to tell you one day. Yeah. Total lightweight. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Very stupid. You can't be just boom, boom. Total control. Donald Trump likes it a lot. You know what that is, right? You know the... Um, Kaylee, are you still there? I'm here. Here's a question for you. How come some of the people on the team have to run like 23 miles (laughs) and you get to run 12, 13 miles? Um, Doesn't seem fair. (laughs) They're probably a lot better runners than I am. I'm not running the least amount though i know that i'm right in the middle yeah did they know that you're going to be running with oxygen (laughs) uh no i also haven't told them i have a stomach ulcer so we're going to keep that on the down low well it sounds like fun so you just drive around in the van following and then um yep and then we have an awesome team name it's snape cod for harry potter lovers out there oh snape yeah, Snape. so running Cape Cod, so our team name's called Snape Cod. We have Snape Cod. Face on it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, great. So it's fun. You decorate your van, you hang out, mm-hmm. and you just laugh a lot. And we try and get in like an hour of sleep. Man, I really days. wanted to. I really, I wanted to be able to talk to you while you were running. So. I know that would have been great. I'll leave you a voicemail tonight. Yeah, yeah, do that. Around three a.m. Yeah, my wife will be like, "Who's this woman breathing all heavy?" Anyway. <laughs> Well, Kaylee, we wish you the best of luck. We got to go, but uh, knock them dead and, you know, be careful. Wear your reflective gear. Good stuff. Kaylee Danes running for Snape Cod. It's kind of scary. 
fun stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Next hour, we'll be doing a little movie review. We'll also be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, helping you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I probably, I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So, you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we, I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from... A um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler, put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. 
Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It, it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One, way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really—did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's— It, it sounded right. It sounded like it. a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it, it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. 
And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't always, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and – Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons— 
this guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured, or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, – with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, most of us will never attempt a run of 160 miles. Even less will we be likely to do it through the Namibian desert. But only one person is attempting all of that. And uh, believe it or not, he's going to do it all while being completely blind. Here to discuss his amazing feats as an ultramarathon runner is uh, Simon Wheatcroft. And uh, man, Simon, welcome to the program, my friend. I know. Well, you know, it's my pleasure to be on the show. It's uh, I loved watching the videos about you and your your life and your your work. Now, you attempted this race in the Namibian desert, right? And you were unable to finish it the first time. Are you planning to do it again? Yeah, I'm going back. You know, the plans are already in motion. I'm, you know, changing the way I train, mixing up a little bit, just so I can go back and try again. You know, the reason I didn't make it essentially is because trying to do it alone yeah um, i took a lot of damage um just running over all the rocks you know like twisting my knees and my feet and in the end i just took too much lateral damage to my leg and yeah it stopped me so now the plan is train up get used to that lateral damage go back wow what is it like in fact talk to us about how this all started your running career because I mean, you you struggled proposing to your girlfriend, right? Climbing a mountain is that is that talk about that story? It's amazing. Yeah, that's how it all started. Um, a few years ago now, I was over in Yosemite actually, and I was um, attempting to hike up Half Dome. I'd never, you know, hiked up a mountain before or anything, but I thought, you know, how hard can this be? I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'll get to the top. I'll, I'll propose to my girlfriend. It turned out it can be quite hard. I was sort of slipping and tripping and stumbling a fair bit, and the chance of dying seemed you know, relatively likely. So then I had to make the very difficult decision to quit you know, this attempt just because I couldn't see, and you know, that was something very difficult to live with. I did still propose. You know, we did get married a few weeks later over in Vegas. But then returning to the UK, this idea of quitting just because I couldn't see really plagued me. So then I decided... You know, never to quit again just because I couldn't see. 
I wanted to push, see what was possible, and I thought, hey, let's see if I can go outside and learn to run alone. Wow. But Now, um, help me understand, Simon, uh, how do you run when you can't see? How do you cross the street? How do you make sure you don't run into a, you know, a fire plug? Um, well, you do run into those things. Is, uh, <laughs> do you? Probably the simple answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened on your journey through the desert, right? Is you kept hitting rocks and bushes, and it just beat you yeah, up. Yeah, you know, you know, I actually managed to run into a flagpole in the desert. <laughs> the only flagpole in the entire desert. In like four hundred square kilometers. <laughs> Holy cow! And I and I managed to find it, so <laughs> that was relatively impressive. That is amazing. But, um, the way I did it, the way I learned to train, because training and how I did it in the desert, you know, I did it in two very different ways. But training was just a case of I paired what it felt like underfoot with some audio distance GPS markers on an app on my phone. Mm-hmm. I was using just a normal fitness app called RunKeeper, which says things like you've run 0.3 miles, you've run 0.6. So I paired what it felt like underfoot with those distance markers, learned when I needed to turn right, when I needed to turn left. When I hit a lamppost or a road sign, I'd, I'd remember where that was from the distance markers and make sure I was at the other side of the pavement next time and piece it together over a couple of months, memorized a route, and then just began to train quite heavily on a three-mile route, which I repeated again and again. And, I've, I've, well, I've put thousands of miles in on that route now. Wow. And I mean, it's really so you've memorized you've memorized the route, and then, but things change, I guess. Like a car might pull up, or a dog might be right there. Do these changes? Then I guess you just adapt and adjust, and that you don't lose in your mind where you are on the route. Um, I have been hit by a van before. Oh man! Um, on that route, that was that was kind of strange because you need to shake it off really quickly <laughs> yeah. because I'm out there on my own, you know. Um, if I lose my phone, I've got no real way of contacting anyone. And, yeah, it was tough. So, yeah, I got hit by the van. I was like, oh, shake it off really quickly, jump back up, you know, brush myself off and, and carried on. And that's what it is a lot of the time. you just got to keep moving forward. And to be honest, that particular route, I know incredibly well now. Mm. So I'd struggle to get disorientated. And yeah. if I did, it would probably only take me 10, 15 seconds to, you know, find something that I know, okay, this, curb means I'm in this location or, you know, this particular post, okay, there's only a post on this part of the road. So I can orientate myself very, very quickly on that route. But, you know, if I, as soon as I move away from that route, yeah, it's very, very oh. And there's this weird experience. I mean, everybody must think you are not, you know, seeing impaired, you're, that you're fine because you're out running every day. But in reality, um, you, you can't see. When did when did talk about your your blindness? Has it been with you your whole life? Um, it's genetic, um, but it was degenerative. Hmm. So while I was born with it, I could still see when I was young. So you know, when I was um, sort of all the way up to sort of teenage years, you know, it was fine. I didn't even know I was losing my sight. To be honest, it wasn't until sort of went to the hospital. I think it was around 13, 14, that they're like, oh, we really need to take a look at this. There seems to be something wrong here. And then by the time, you know, I'd actually gone through the system and everything, I was already blind, uh, registered blind by 17. Although being registered blind is kind of strange because depending how you've lost your vision, you can still see. Hmm. I could see pretty well up until 
sort of mid-twenties, and then by age 26, 27, that's when, mm. you know, I pretty much lost all what people would class of, as vision. Now all I have is just above light perception. So, you know, thankfully, having sight when I was younger does mean I've seen a lot of things. You know, I know how much I have space, uh, like a car occupies and tables and chairs. And now I just, when I'm out and about, I make assumptions of how much space something would occupy. Hmm. Sometimes I'm very wrong. <laughs> but, you know, 90% of the time, you yeah. get it right. So you concentrate on the times you get it right. Do you run in the day or do you run at night? I guess it wouldn't matter. Uh, mainly in the day, just because um, logistics, because where I train, <laughs> this is going to sound really strange, but I can't actually get to the start of my run route on my own. Oh, really? Yeah, it's because of where it starts. Um, you can kind of really only get there by car. Um, you can't really walk there. It's a, it's a really long walk. So it, I basically, and my wife's driving to work or she, dropping the kids off, and so she drops me off in the train. There you go. And then you just run home. <laughs> well, no, because I can't run home either. So, <laughs> so you got to run. Oh, my heavens. So I'll be out there for, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time and then, you know, get a lift back or, or something like that. But so your training days, if you're, if you're going to be an um, ultra-marathon runner, it's a, it's, you run 160 miles is the attempt, right? Yeah, you know, I've run further than that. I've run 260 miles before. Um, I ran from Boston to New York, and then when I got to New York, I did the marathon. Oh, my heavens. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. That was, that was a really nice distance as well. And so, yeah, I've run, you know, big distances before. The, you know, the desert was just challenging just because, you know, I couldn't see the rocks more than anything. But, um, yeah, training-wise, it basically means your weekends are just, heavily occupied with training so you'll get up on a saturday you'll run 20 or 30 miles you know you get up on a sunday and you do the same and then through the week you're just throwing in some shorter distances doing some speed and things so if you can sort of be willing to give up four hours on a saturday four hours on a sunday yeah it's uh it's more than manageable you're running a marathon on a saturday and then a marathon pl- and another marathon on a sunday yeah, if I'm in the sort of far end of a training cycle, getting ready for multi-day or long distance, yeah, that's the type of distance I'd cover a weekend. And then when you go run your ultra marathon, do, do you run straight, nonstop, the 160 miles? Um, no, that particular one was a multi-day event. So okay. you also had to survive in the desert for seven days. Yeah. You know, so you had to take all your own food and you sleep and stuff and carry it every day. So that was a, a multi-day sort of distance slash, you know, make it in the desert. Um, whereas I have done distances, you know, single-day distances in the 80 to 100-mile range. Mm. But it, it just depends. Sometimes I'm, you know, going for the biggest distance in 24 hours or a 24-hour race. Other times, you know, I'm doing multi-day where you just get to do a marathon a day for however many days you want to do it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, to me, it's heroic. Um, let's take a break and come back, Simon. I'd love to find out more about um, just how you how your brain works and how you think. I mean, the deal is that ultramarathoning is one thing, you know, visually impaired, blind is another, and yet you've combined them both. Um, it, it's it's a pretty powerful, I think. Uh, lesson for all of us to learn. We'll take a break. More with uh, Simon Wheatcroft when we come back, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 
helping you see the good in the world. And uh, Simon Wheatcroft definitely is bringing that to the game. Stick with us. We'll continue this journey right here on The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you ever just had a friend say, let's go run a marathon. And you're like, ah, I could never do it. How about just running from Boston to New York City, then while you're in New York, run the Boston Marathon, or the, the New York City Marathon. Just do that. And do it blind. Today's guest, Simon Wheatcroft, did just that very thing along with others. Um, I mean, other uh, long ultra marathons as well. He's he's a runner and has a website, andadapt.com, A-N-D-Adapt.com. Uh, and it's just a great place to go learn as much as you can from this incredible person. Simon Wheatcroft, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to have you. What does your wife think of this? Like when when she says, yeah, Simon, you go out into the desert, the Namibian desert, and you just run. Does that does this scare her? Yeah, uh, the desert was particularly a difficult one because I was attempting it so low. It's something she didn't really want to talk to me about. Hmm. She considered it a, a little too risky. So it, it was something that, you know... I gently revealed to her over time. Yeah. <laughs> she she agreed to, but she wasn't particularly happy about me doing it. Oh, sure. But at, at the same time, you know, I think she realized that, you know, if she said no, you know, it had just been a difficult thing to do and I'd have been a bit too upset. So let me do it. And, you know, we put a lot of safety sort of measures in there to make it as safe as possible to yeah. my ease. Is what's harder for you, um, Simon, the the ultra marathoning side of this or the blind side of this? Um, it really depends on the event. Um, for example, the Namibia one. The fact I was trying to do it without vision is what made it particularly difficult. Um, if I was able to see and able to see the rocks and the obstacles, it would have been. I don't want to use the word easy, but it would have certainly been manageable. Hmm. So in that particular one, it was my lack of vision, which um, we had got on top of me. Whereas, you know, all the things like the Boston to New York, uh, I'd say, you know, the distance was starting to get a little bit on top of me because that much sort of running on concrete begins to just physically hurt your limbs. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the event, you know, um, depends what challenge you're doing. And I think because Namibia was so low, it was always going to be trying to manage the fact I couldn't see while doing the adventure. Do you um, do you consider yourself a hero? I mean, I know that. I mean, I'm sure you you don't think of yourself that way, but you know that there's people that are just amazed by you. Um, I try not to think of it in those terms. You know, I'm just going out there and trying to see what I'm capable of, and. I do understand that I am absolutely pushing the limit to d- to discover these things. And I think some people perhaps do look at that and think, wow, you know, people really can push hard and and do things that are beyond, 
you know what perhaps the public perception is but i try not to think about people's perceptions of me too much just oh it's very difficult to, <laughs> to yeah. think about those things yeah and, and i guess to even try to live up to it or play the role of it who who's your hero um it depends in what field really you know i I absolutely adore technology, so a lot of my the people I would look up to would be some of the big people in technology. But if we're talking about fitness or endurance, there's a there's a lady called Rosie Swale Pope, and in her late fifties, she decided one day just to run around the world. Wow! So she left her you know house by the front door, and then took five years, and she ran around the entire world, self-sufficient, carried all her own kit, and that is just, to me, absolutely incredible. You know, a solo attempt and to dedicate that much of your life to one event just to see if it's even possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she proved it was possible. So, yeah, absolutely incredible. That's pretty neat. Um, is that now stirring in the back of your mind, like, hey... <laughs> Maybe I could run around the world. I've got two small children. Yeah. And if I was going to dedicate, you know, that much of my life, I'd miss out on a huge portion of their life. And I think that'd be way too selfish. There is one adventure I would like to take on that would be relatively time consuming, but I think I'm willing to dedicate that much time. And I'd love to um, cycle the Pan Am Highway. Mm. So Cycle possibly. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at you. Uh, I'm, th- I'm currently thinking about that you know, and then contemplating, do I go tandem? You know, do I go out there and, and design the technology that would make it possible to do it alone? It's, uh, it's up in the air at the minute, which way I'd like to tackle that. But that's definitely on the horizon, but far in the horizon. You know, in terms of short term, the next year or two, I'm obviously going back to Africa to, to pull this to bed, to go back there and, and finish. And then mm. just run a few of the marathons and a few of the ultras. But, you know, in the back of my mind is that Pan Am Highway, just now and again saying hello. That's great. What Now, what do you do for a living? Or can you do this professionally? Um, for a living, I actually do a, a lot of public speaking. Yeah. So I'll talk about, you know, the adventure in generally what it takes to get there because, you know, the story isn't necessarily out there in the desert or out there between Boston and New York. The story is in what it took to go from, you know, not running and what it takes sort of physically and mentally to to take this challenge on. You know, th- there is an added level of difficulty there with losing my sight. So, you know, I talk about those things. And then I also sort of work for a lot of technology companies. But that is, that is my absolute passion, technology. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking more about inclusive design sort of approaches to sort of design methodology, making sort of technology more accessible to everyone and more inclusive. I mean, like, yeah, you're using um, the the runkeeper.com app, but you're also using Google Glasses. I mean, you've really adopted technology. And can there be a day, and it seems like, why not, where you could basically have everything you need to do anything, not just run these ultra marathons, but be able to do anything even though you're sight impaired? Yeah, you know, the technology that I created with IBM for the desert, um, we're looking to expand upon. 
um, because I'd like to... Essentially, we went to the desert because it's an open space. You know, there's not many obstacles, even though I did find the one flagpole, flagpole. in the desert. Watch out for the flagpole. Um, <laughs> the, the next step is to then go to an incredibly complicated environment, something like um, the New York Marathon or the Boston Marathon, and try and do that solo, because what makes that particular challenging is the other competitors. You know, right. can we create a system that communicates to me how I avoid everybody? And if we're capable of making that system, then that can be heavily generalized and be incredibly productive to people's everyday life that are visually impaired. Yeah. Because that system would essentially allow you to, to not only navigate, but also avoid static and, and moving objects. Right. Well, and there's a we've had another man on the show that um, can use sonar as he just clicks and he runs and or and rides bikes and he but there's technology I guess I guess part of it is like you're saying tune it in huh so that you can take it actually and go run a marathon with thousands of people. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of working on you know similar lines as the echolocation, but it would um, the technology approach would be to use something like lidar which is laser radar, to identify the objects and then translate that into haptic feedback, hmm. which would be fed to like a belt you wear around your chest or your waist. And it gives vibration patterns, you know, letting you know where people yeah. are to allow you to avoid it. And that would be the hope. And, you know, that's the next step. Can we create that quick enough for me to compete in New York or Boston? Hmm. Wow. It's, um, and, and then, you. by the way, I'm not going to tell you your business, Simon, but I would for sure have some option of you know notif- noticing flagpoles <laughs> and and cheetahs that might run you down in the namibian desert for example I, apparently you need to watch out for the lions in the namibian desert oh, uh, pride of lions did start tracking um the competitors in the race are you serious yeah you yeah, might want to yeah. just you might want to just drive that one <laughs> just drive that leg hey um, yeah, simon will be safe in the car for a bit <laughs> that's right what do you tell um what do you tell some young person maybe going through the exact same uh, issue that you were as a young 13, 14-year-old boy losing their eyesight? What, what advice do you give them? Initially, I'd say, you know, it's a process. When you begin to lose your sight, it is upsetting. It's a very difficult time. And, you know, it isn't, you know, you, you flick a light switch and all of a sudden, you know, you've got fantastic determination and fantastic grit. It's a it's a process that happens over a number of years, and it's small iterative steps, and those small steps eventually add up to massive leaps forward. And that's generally what you know I try and push that you know don't look for this sort of light bulb moment because while the the mountain for me was a trigger point, the skills that it took for me to train solo I'd been developing over the past three or four years by not using a long cane. Hmm. Then I was able to transfer those skills to running. It was basically just doing it at speed. So, yeah, i just say that, you know, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. You just need to learn to adapt, and whatever you want to achieve, if you're willing to adapt and move forward, anything's possible. Yeah. And um, your children, what do they when they look at Dad running an ultramarathon or, you know, finishing the New York Marathon... What is that like uh, for you as a dad to to show to be able to be teaching him that? You know, uh, that's one of the reasons I took these things up. You know, we all tell our children that you can achieve anything you want and dreams are possible, but 
sometimes you need to go out there and prove it. You need mm. to show them that it's possible. It isn't a case of just telling them. And, you know, my children right now are still relatively young. My eldest is five and my youngest is two. Although the eldest actually came out when I ran Boston to New York and he ran part of it. Mm. You know, he, he met me a couple of miles away from the finish line at Central Park and we oh, ran wow. through New York together, you know, came round into Columbus Circle and then ran to the finish line together. I'd love to say that we crossed the finish line together, but, you know, a few hundred metres from the finish line, he turned around and said, Daddy, Daddy, I'm really tired. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay then. So we stopped and, you know, chance to give him the best. And then he spun it off and crossed the finish line first. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> That's great. He's playing you. He tricked you. He absolutely did. And then there was only one medal as well, and he got the medal then. Did he get the medal? He stole your medal, Simon. Yeah, but, you know, I prefer that it's worth it. has it than me. And again, you're running as – you're, as you're finishing the marathon, nobody knew, um, nobody knew you were blind, I'm assuming. Um, in that particular marathon, oh, I did have a guide, but I don't tether. Yeah, okay. Because what you, what you generally find is – um, blind people in races will physically tell you no to another runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something I've never really done and I can just um, navigate around by hearing them in sound and sometimes I'll just touch the, the elbow to you know, make uh, sure yeah. there. So from the outside, I don't think people do know that I'm blind. I don't sort of wear anything to say that I'm blind. Right. Yeah. Wow, I it's... do it quite anonymously. I don't know. You're, I think you're very inspirational I, to all of us um, because, I mean, I, I go on a walk like four miles a day and it wears me out. And I think I'm a wuss. Simon runs in the flipping desert. So, I, you know, it starts with small steps. When I come when I first started running alone, a mile seemed like a phenomenal distance. <laughs> And I couldn't believe that I'd run a mile. Yeah. And, you know, then you get to 10 miles and you can't believe you've run 10 miles. Then you get to 100, you can't believe you've run 100, then 200. And, yeah, every small step just seems like a huge improvement. Well, it is. And, again, I think it gives hope that uh, we can all, with a little change here, a little step, just a few steps, just get started and and push yourself like you taught us. Simon Wheatcroft, thank you so much. Uh, Again, everybody, go check out the website andadapt.com where you can get more information about everything that he's up to. You can read his blog. Simon, thank you. Appreciate it. I know. Thank you. My pleasure. Truly, uh, truly, the good in the world right there. And a family man raising a family as well. Can you imagine what his kids are learning about? Just get to it. Start running. Right? Nobody's perfect, but we can always take a step forward. Try something new. Powerful. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. When we come back, continue the discussion of all things good right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Giving you the tools to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, you got to love Simon Wheatcroft. Now, is is that heroic? Or is he just living the life? You know, he's called to live. Everybody's basically, think about it, everybody's got a disability. It's what you do with it. His is blindness. Yeah, but that's a real disability. I don't know. Have you met my cousin Larry? He's got a personality disorder that is messed up. Is it a real disorder? No, he's just weird. So 
Is it your personality that is your disability? Is it your uh, is it just how you your start in life? You started with a family uh, that had never gone to college, a family that had never, you know, were a, without a father in the home. Think of how many people are raised in inner cities without a father, without a, a shot at going to college, or anyone in the family that even goes to to, to college or to go get a trade. I mean, that seems like a pretty big disability to start with. And maybe what we do is we use the same technique Simon has taught us of uh, you just you, – you don't have to run everything. You just run a, run a mile. Take, run a half a mile. Start small. But whatever it is, and as you're out there listening, it's your life, right? And we've all got to figure out a way to make the best with the little we've got. And don't look at it as just this major weakness. And that, that'll that come in time. And every time we interview somebody that's that, that's incredible like uh, Simon here, we, we they tend to have the ability to not frame themselves by their weakness, by their disability. They frame themselves by their strength, by their, his curiosity. And he also seems like being able to mesh a bunch of things that he loves, technology, and exercise together, and again, isn't being hindered by that. So life's going to hand it to you one way or another, and it's pretty random as well. I think the disabilities, the the problems we're all going to run into, a lot of the things are almost – they seem custom-made for us. You know, why is it the woman that, oh, has so loved her hair is the one that got cancer and lost her hair? It's there's just always something, right? And it's almost ironic how it how it kind of gets handed out. Another little uh, moment of irony we'll post on our Twitter page. It's a video that is ah, oh, it's just the circle of life, folks. It's the circle of life. You you heard last week we did the eagle story where an eagle picked up I guess a house cat and brought it to its nest and they were recording the nest and uh, fed the cat to these baby eaglets, whatever you call them, little baby eagles. So I'm going to post another one. Again, another bird's nest, this time a robin with that beautiful red breast and uh, those greenish robin bluish eggs. Just this beautiful nest, just in a tree. Robin's just sitting on it, warming those eggs. Then the robin flies away. There, those eggs just sit there until a snake, nature's predator, comes and steals the eggs. Not funny, but the reality of life is things come. You know, this is just the circle of life, and uh, it's part of it. It's part of it. Um, anyway, it's crazy. I'm. We're just gonna post it on the Twitter feed at Doctor Matt Show. There's not a great lesson except, you know, you're either the egg or the snake. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. A whole other hour coming up. Gretchen Rubin, including uh, included next hour. Man, she is uh, she's all about happiness, and she's going to be talking about her new book um, on happiness. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm here with Cole Wissinger, as always. Each and every week, we do our darndest to shine a big old spotlight in all that is good and entertainment. We do want to spend a bit of time on a new film called Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Maybe you've heard of it. It's making some money. Right. But uh, before we get into that, I wanted to share some information with you that maybe you did not know, Cole. Let's take us back to if screen cleaning existed in 1992, and we're sharing the hot new news of the casting of this Michael Crichton adaptation, Jurassic Park. Can you imagine somebody else in the Ian Malcolm role, somebody other than the great Jeff Goldblum? No. They were thinking of the following people. Johnny Depp. Michael Keaton, Michael J. Fox. He's got the likability factor going for him, but... uh, It would have been very different. Yes. He could have played up the nerdy aspect. But just imagine Michael J. Fox essentially as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Now, uh, the Three Men and a Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady movies were quite popular. I admit I enjoyed them as a kid. Imagine either Ted Danson or... Steve Gutenberg as Ian Malcolm. Well, what was hotter at the turn of the 80s to the 90s than Cheers? And Ted Danson was the man at the time. The most surprising of all of these, and this person apparently had an amazing audition for the role, and this was just before this person had one of the biggest years of his career, Jim Carrey as Ian Malcolm. (laughs) I'm glad we got Jim Carrey in his breakout roles when we did, and yes. then we got Jeff Goldblum here. That all worked out very well. Who knows? Maybe we wouldn't have seen Ace Ventura, The Mask, or Dumb and Dumber had he been cast in this role. That would have set off a course for chaos, I'm sure, which is very fitting because that's what Ian Malcolm is all about, the chaos theory. Which brings us to our late review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But instead of just doing a straight review like we do sometimes, we're actually going to be ranking all five of the Jurassic Park movies. So, Cole, I am going to let you start off with your rankings. And we're going to go from worst to best. Well, <gasps> you want to do it the other best way? to first because okay. the the idea of saving the best for last when you rank things is to build up suspense. We want to no know suspense here. Yeah, there's as far as the number one pick. Is number what you're one is Jurassic Park, the one wow. that started it all. You're kidding. It brought everyone together <laughs> and showed us dinosaurs for the first time. The real suspense in this ranking is which one is actually the worst of the worst. So this is a basically a rich guy who wants to create a park where dinosaurs are the main attraction, but he wants to make it semi-affordable so that the regular Joes can go and see it, but he has to get some experts to sign off on the park. In order to get the insurance people off his back, he has to get some real dino and mathy expert nerds to come to the park and give it the okay. Okay. This is your number one pick, not surprisingly. And then there is a giant gulf (laughs) that you could fit brachiosauruses in without their heads peeking over. Nice. Before we get to number two, (laughs) which in my opinion is Jurassic Park 3. Jurassic Are Park 3 brings back Sam Neill, Dr. Grant from the first one. Uh, William H. Macy and his sort of a strange dish wife have a kid that went hang gliding over the island for some adventure, and then they haven't heard from him since. So 
they pose as really rich people that could pay Dr. Grant for, to go back there. Um, he says no, and then they just kidnap him anyway uh, with his young plucky assistant, and they have plucky. dino adventures. <laughs> okay. It is – so Interesting. none of these movies – none of the four movies that aren't <laughs> Jurassic Park are good movies. I just had a lot of fun in that one at least. Okay. It doesn't try to be anything other than dino adventure. And I can get behind that. And bless him for the hour and a half running time. Yes. Thank goodness. Keeps me in and out. Okay, so. The next one on my list does not exactly do because number three is Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, or Jurassic World 2, or Jurassic Park 5, the newest one. Yes. The one that just came out. Yes. Okay. So in a different vein from Jurassic Park 3, this one tries to do a lot of things, and it has a lot of really heavy subjects to talk about. It doesn't do them the justice (laughs) that they need, but at least it's trying to bring back some of the conversations that maybe the first one was having and bring it home in a real human kind of way. And what's interesting about this, instead of uh, like uh, Jurassic Park 2 and 3, where they're trying to rescue humans. This one, they're trying to rescue the dinosaurs. Yeah, by this point in our franchise, the dinosaurs are they're constantly fighting alongside the humans anyway. <laughs> and so now we've turned them, it, as opposed to being sort of antagonists. I mean, Injin, the, the big bad company, was of course the 90s sure. bad guy in the first one. But the dinosaurs were still against them sort of mm-hmm. whereas by now chris pratt and his raptor buddy are kind of co-heroes blue, blue. cute little blue and oh, we get to flashbacks. see baby blue baby too blue. yeah four yes is actually <gasps> the lost world jurassic park 2 you're kidding explain yourself Again, they're all just – they're all not good. So <laughs> we're splitting hairs between them. But The Lost World, I think, captures a lot of where you would go naturally with a sequel. So we went to an island uh, on the first one and all the all the dinosaurs were there. But now let's see what dinosaurs do when they come to San Diego. <gasps> oh, not something I really wanted to see, but they did it anyway. It's fun. Okay. And then the last one, in my opinion, is Jurassic World, where we're rebooting the entire franchise. We're going back while still staying in the same universe. It's been however many years since the park went down. But now it's Jurassic World, and we make all the same mistakes, and we're trying to DNA splice dinosaurs to make them more exciting. Jurassic World was just too poorly meta for me where a lot of the things they were saying with their movie also applied to this movie Mm -hmm. but they were still doing them like if you're gonna be meta you have to you have to do something new or you have to say something important whereas they're just being cynical about how people just want the same old dinosaurs by giving us the same old dinosaurs and and saying no people want new exciting genetically infused dinosaurs by giving us just genetically infused dinosaurs in your movie i really really dislike the jurassic world wow okay or jurassic park 4 so maybe we're not as close on these but i think one thing that we can agree on is that no surprise jurassic park none of the films come close to it right uh the entire film works for me there's not a single sequence that i would remove from the film and for 1993 the dinosaurs look oh yeah yeah. Which can't always be said for some of the um, Of all of these films, it's the only one I've seen more than once in the theaters. I saw it three times in the theaters. I was 11 years old at the time. 
Uh, no, 10 years old at the time. It's the funniest movie of all of them. It's the most thrilling and the most cohesive of the entire franchise. So I won't spend too much more talking uh, time talking about that. My number two pick would be Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Ah, so we do both enjoy this movie fairly. And well. let me let me explain myself. So um, this can be your proper review time. Right. So Chris Pratt... Whereas in uh, Jurassic World, I thought he gave a really wooden performance. I think he settled a little more into the role this time, so he's more sure of himself. He's, he's a little funnier. But the, the setup for this movie, I will say, is absolutely preposterous. And my wife and I both felt the same way that Chris Pratt's character does when Bryce Dallas Howard comes to see him in this bar. And she's like, you're just going to let the dinosaurs die? And he's like, uh, yep. yeah, of course. Who wouldn't just let these dinosaurs die who were extinct for a reason anyway? Uh, yeah, that's the one biggest hurdle that you have to get over in this movie. The entire premise of the movie. And you really yeah. can't, so you just have to let it go. Uh, I will say it's the most different from the other films. This film this was, is a haunted house with a dinosaurs. A haunted house movie with dinosaurs, right? The whole so second half of the movie. a lot of different possibilities. This movie is filled with even if you can believe it, even dumber people that you found in Jurassic World. but And we made fun of it even more than we did Jurassic World, but the scares are better. Uh, we had more fun, and it sets up the franchise to go in a totally different direction. It made me think of another franchise, Planet of the Apes, I'm not going to say why, which made me think, oh, if only they could give the reins to the director of those films, Matt Reeves. I'm so glad that you made this connection because I was thinking the same thing. We're now sort of on the side of the dinosaurs like we kind of became to the side of the apes. But again, all of these big heavy things that Jurassic World 2 tries to do, it just falls flat every time and there's yeah. poor decision making and again it's not a good movie i really love those <laughs> new planet of the apes movies oh so yeah i made the comparison too it's just a such a lesser version so my number three is jurassic world it i think it's the first film in the franchise to embrace its b movie status it knows what it is and it doesn't pretend to be something else. But it didn't have to be. This was I know. the reboot. I know. This was our new chance at dinosaurs. So I mentioned Chris Pratt's performance is super wooden. He like walks around with his arms at his side. He's not the same Chris Pratt that we've come to know and love in shows like Parks and Rec and uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Um, and he's given the expository role. So basically, for audience members who aren't following along with uh, revelations throughout the movie, he will spell it out for you uh, in plain English every single time, which makes you groan every single time. It has the longest and weirdest death scene of any of the Jurassic Park movies. Of all the bad guys, of all the slimy businessmen or hunter guys that have no respect for animals, why did Claire's poor assistant get the most gruesome she gets death the, yeah, in the she entire gets the worst franchise? One. Yeah. It's just dumb fun, and it's so much fun to just make fun of it and the people while still having a good time. My number four is Jurassic Park 3. So no characters, not a single character you care about. Um, it To me, as I was watching, I felt like it had a direct-to-DVD quality to it, which is interesting because so f- up to this point, it had the biggest budget of any of the Jurassic Park movies, and it looks like the most cheaply made Jurassic Park movie. Um, everybody talks about the talking raptor scene. Ellen! <laughs> 
Sam Neill, I I really like how he plays this character in the film. He kind of plays it like he's an actor at Comic-Con who you can tell really does not want to be there. But I don't think I don't think he was phoning it in. I think that's where his character is at. He's like, "You know what? Nobody believes me. Nobody's funding our stuff anymore." He's kind of on his last leg with his um research. However, so even though I said that this movie looks cheaply made, this film has some of the most effective and scary sequences in any of the Jurassic Park films. The aviary scene where you don't – they don't know where they're at and then once the fog kind of starts to go away – this movie has great use of fog. Mm -hmm. You figure out where they are and it is freaky. This film has great ideas but they can't quite get the execution right on those ideas. But I did like it more than The Lost World Jurassic Park. If Jurassic Park 3 had a direct DVD, direct-to-DVD quality to it, Jurassic Park 2, or The Lost World, had a deleted scene quality to it. I felt like I was watching deleted scenes that should have been taken from the movie but were left in. Um, it's full of – well, the the movie starts out with some really pointless cameos. It has the worst villain of any of the Jurassic Park movies. It has some of the, the – oh, yeah. The most groan-inducing moments of any of these films. You don't. I don't care for the story. There were a couple of fun sequences, but for the most part, this is the most boring of the Jurassic Park movies. Not a single character that you care about, which is a shame because Ian Malcolm is the greatest character in any of these movies. So it's no surprise, Cole, that uh, to anyone, I'm sure, that Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park, is by far the best in the franchise. Speaking of the best... When we return, we're actually going to be speaking with a couple of BYU Animation students who are the best video game creators. Mm, That's up next here on Screen Cleaning. BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. You know, every year the biggest names in the video game industry gather from around the world at the annual Electronic Entertainment Expo in Los Angeles. It's also known as E3. The event includes a prestigious game creation contest open to the best university and graduate level animation programs nationwide. And earlier this month, a team of students from none other than Brigham Young University was invited to E3 2018 as top five finalists. And guess what? They received first place for their submission, entitled Beatboxers. Here to talk about the winning game and their road to victory are Jedi Lion and Chris Fish, both in the animation department. Gentlemen, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thank you for having us. It's good to have you. First of all, congratulations on this victory. This is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. (laughs) This is really big. I mean, it's the first time we've won. We've been there four times um, over the past six years, is it so? Yeah. So the first time we've actually won it, though, so it's we're excited. We're stoked. That's awesome. And what a resume builder, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Best. Okay. Before we get into uh, the background of this, I, I've Jedi, I've got to ask you about your name, Jedi Lion. I'm yeah. sure you get asked about your name all the time. I do. Okay. Tell us. What's going on? Uh, so <laughs> it's short for Jedediah, but because I'm in animation and uh, I made comics based on my friends, gave them all superhero names and powers, uh, they started calling me Jedi, and it's just stuck since then. 
Okay, so we need to make it clear that you, it was your friends that started calling you Jedi. Yes. Okay. I didn't take it upon myself. <laughs> That's awesome. So we know that you're both in the animation department here at BYU. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the game here in just a minute, and then we'll talk about the E3 Expo as well. I'm curious to know how how this all got started. How did you? How long ago did you guys start working on this game? How long of a process was this? Um, so the game itself takes about a year. I'd say maybe a little bit longer than that sometimes because we um, before one even finishes up, we'll have the idea picked out for the next game that we're going to do the next year. So it'll start with the conceptualization of it and then move into, you know, actually creating the 3D assets of it. And then, you know, at the same time, we'll be starting to get the programmers in to actually make the, the functions and everything work in the game while the art people start adding their assets to it. And then it's just kind of like a, you know, a boulder rolling downhill, it just kind of picks up speed the longer sure. it goes. So it, it kind of starts off in, in this just this idea phase where you don't know what's going on. But as as the project goes on, towards the end, we just got so many people who are working on it and just throwing in all of their stuff. So what what would you say your roles are? Are you guys more on the computer side? Or are you more on like the 2D, you know, uh, storyboarding part of it? Well, for beatboxers, I was a modeler. So really? I made 3D assets. Uh, I specifically made Griff, who is our rock character. Okay. Um, so I took the designs from the art department, and then I actually helped to design it because it wasn't completed in design. Um, so I went back and forth with the art director, giving ideas about what I had for, like, once it is in 3D, it seemed kind of boring at first. So... It was actually quite exciting to to have that back and forth and kind of help design the character. Yeah. Because usually a modeler just models what was given to them, you know. For a minute there, I thought you were like standing up on a box and oh. people were animating you. <laughs> but uh, that's obviously not true. Um, Chris, how about you? What, what was your role in this? I was actually um, – so I started off just doing the animations for it. Um, I was one of the few that we started off. But then as we got rolling on animations, they actually made me lead animator. So I was kind of over the animation team. So we did the actual character animation, the movements, the movesets, all the attacks and hits and blocks and stuff like that. We had to take Jedi's model, for example, you know, Riff, and then someone would put a rig on that, which is like the bone structure and everything that allows us to to move it in 3D space. Okay, so now let's talk about what this game is. It's called Beatboxers, and there's kind of, you know, kind of hinting at the fact that Maybe there's some beating up going on, but there's also a musical element to it. So tell us, what is this game all about? Well, you just said it. It's uh, <laughs> it's about boxing to the beat. So it's a mashup of rhythm game and fighting game. And so as you're fighting, uh, it's, fighting game is definitely the overall feeling of the game. Um, there's a beat, and there's music going on, and there's beat indicators, just like you would have in a rhythm game. And rather than knocking down people's life totals, uh, as you do in most fighting games, you actually are raising your audience meter to win. Interesting. And the, uh, when you hit on the beat, your moves do more damage. They can combo, etc. But if you miss the beat, then you do way less damage. And if somebody else hit the beat, like theirs will, their attack will supersede yours. Okay. So, Jedi, you already mentioned Riff, who's one of the characters, one of the two characters. Chris, what can you tell us about Maestra? Maestra, so when people were 
going through, you know, what characters should we have and everything. Because we had, like, tons of designs for tons of characters. We kind of realized, you know, with the amount of time that we had, we need to really focus on two characters before we could do anything else. And so people, you know, really like the Rift character, the Rock character. And so the, the natural, you know, clash with Rock is usually, like, the classical um, kind of, at least as far as music goes. So we, we tried to conceptualize that into two characters. We had the Rock character who's, you know, this fun, energetic kind of... Uh, spunky personality and so then we came up with maestra who's this you know calm collect you know very um meticulous meticulous yeah crafts you know Mm, interesting uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jedi – I almost called you Jedi Fish. Jedi, <laughs> Jedi Lion and Chris Fish. They're two students in the animation department here at Brigham Young University and winners of the big E3 competition. Uh, I wanted to ask you, have have you guys – have you played this game a lot? Who would you say is the best at playing this? Definitely the, Mike. <laughs> yeah, the designer of the game who pitched the original idea of mm-hmm. boxing to the beat – last may or april sometime around there um so he's the lead designer which is the computer side figuring out how the game works what are the mechanics of the game and this was his brainchild and he loves fighting games and oh, he he, he whopped on everybody at e3 <laughs> i didn't see him like, lose i know there's so many like combos that i didn't know existed in the game even though i did the animations for them and then suddenly like he pulls them out when i'm trying to fight, face him it's crazy <laughs> So if you if you could take one element of this game or even one part of the process that you're particularly proud of, what is it that you love most about this game? I think one of the coolest things – well, I've got two of the coolest things that I love about this game. Um, but one of the coolest things is that it's innovative. Like we said, the, the, the designer, he was very fond of fighting games. But instead of just making a fighting game, we tried to make something different, you know, try to mash up two – two different styles of games that haven't been done before. And you, you have a lot of people, um, and especially we saw this when we went to E3, you know, there's a lot of games out there and they're good ideas, but sometimes people just kind of copy ideas a lot. And you, you yeah. see a lot of re- repetitivity in the in the industry. And so it's fun because we have a professor who is always trying to push us to make sure that we're we're thinking, why why should this game be made? Why are we making this game? Like what is what is unique about it? What's special? And I think it's definitely that, that it's that we try to be innovative with our stuff. We don't try to just copy somebody else's work we we're not trying to be like the other studios we're trying to be ourselves and and make what we want and and push our boundaries further and further sure and jedi i want to ask you a a different question uh something i've noticed uh cole and i talk a lot about movies on the show and we recently saw incredibles 2 and before the movie starts they have this. They have this little clip of some of the cast members and some of the animators talking about all the work that went into this. They did something similar with the movie Coco, mm-hmm. and I think obviously I I know people understand that there's a lot that go into animation. They may not appreciate it as much as they should, but I'm curious to know what would you say is one of the most difficult aspects of creating a video game or creating an animation that, that people might not be aware of? Uh, well, all of it. All <laughs> of it is difficult. Um, i say that one of the biggest things is is just making a uniform front. Um, so everybody kind of has their own ideas. And we did have an art director. We did have the a designer, who, the lead designer, who was kind of, running the show but they were kind of like 
the heads of us, but we we are still pitching our ideas and because they're artists, uh, even on the CS side, like a lot of them are, you know, they they see their craft as an art and yeah, and they like to do things that they like to do, and so keeping everybody on track whenever they have different opinions is is probably the hardest part to like just like get rid of your own pride and and work towards the goal that the rest of the people have chosen. I would imagine that would be difficult because I think I read that you guys had a, a, a core group of about 15 animators working on this project together. Yeah. Well, yeah. CS slash animation slash illustration majors, yeah. So were there any other setbacks that you guys came across while creating this other than, you know, trying to trying to get over some of those differences of opinion? Well, I mean, we talked about earlier the the innovation, you know, trying to mash up two styles. Like, yeah. it's really hard. And even though it was cool that we did it, I mean, we just found that a lot of times we had to go back to the drawing board because we'd have several weekends where we'd just have people come in and play test it and play test it. And to them, it was only reading as a fighting game, right? It just looked like a fighting game. It was set up on a stage and there's music to it and that's great, but they didn't understand the, the rhythm component to it. Yeah. And so we'd have to go back and back and say, okay, how can we, you know, push this a little bit further how can we make this be you know the forefront that it's it's not just a fighting game it's it's also a rhythm game sure and so that was definitely difficult we had to go through so many different iterations on how the gameplay went and you know different elements of the game it was there yeah. were there were a lot of unplayable versions of what the <laughs> gameplay would be like to have the beatbox and there's one point where you couldn't move except you couldn't move or attack except for on the beat and so it felt like a fighting game where you were being, you were fighting against the machine more than you were against your opponent. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, like finding that balance of what the game would be, yeah, because it's never been done before, was really hard for us. Uh, that was probably hardest problem we had to solve. So that kind of leads into the next question of obviously, when you were given this assignment, you had a limited amount of time, and you had to get things ready in time for this big competition. If you could spend countless more hours on this, what would you? What direction would you take it in? Would you add more characters? Would you add different styles of music? What other? Where else would you take this game? Definitely both of those. Yeah, there were so many different ideas. I mean, we had lots of different stage concepts drawn up. We had so many characters, like I mentioned before, that were drawn up. Just so much stuff, and we we wanted to implement at some point, uh, uh, like select your like put your own music in and so like it would put the music that you want in and you could fight to your own music oh and cool stuff like that. Yeah. there's just so much that you can do but like our professors always say it's not it's not done it's due <laughs> so <laughs> not done it's due and this is ultimately a slice of a game and to show that yeah the concepts you know so do any of these games whether it's games that that you've been a part of or that byu's been a part of or games from other universities do any of them ultimately go on to become actual games that people can buy and play so at our university no because we use educational licenses for everything we do so we can't Hmm. sell anything we make but we do provide our games uh, on steam Mm -hmm. so beatboxers we're hoping will be on steam next month after and people we, can just play it for free. Yep, can just play it for awesome. free. Um, but I know that a couple of the universities we were against uh, were going to move their students out into, like, starting a studio as they were making their video games. So uh, other universities, that is sometimes what happens. 
And, you know, it's not the end of the world because you guys did win first place. It's a great resume builder. Yeah. So let's actually talk a little bit more about E3 because I'm pretty sure most of our listeners are not going to be familiar with, with what E3 is all about. Where does it take place? Um, and you, you mentioned that this is uh, – you've been invited four or six times. What was that four again? Times, four, four times. Four times. So where does it take place and and – who else do we see or who else do you see there at this competition? Well, E3 takes place at the L.A. Convention Center in, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. There were like five buildings in total that there's, it took place in. There's talk about moving it in the future to lo- other locations because it's just starting to get so big. But Yeah. Uh, but you see all of the major studios for for video games. Like Nintendo had their booth right next to us. Um, IGN had their uh, talk show set up right there, like Kitty Corner from us. Walking Dead had a station. Bandai Namco had a station. You see, like those, and we use the word booth lightly. These are ginormous setups <laughs> that they just have. There's yeah. massive screens yeah. and just the coolest stuff. You know, PlayStation, Xbox, everybody's, you see everybody there. So. Chris, how did you feel walking into this convention center? And I, I don't want to use the, you know, it's like a kid walking into a candy store, but maybe it's more like a kid walking into a video game store. You know, somebody that's really into video games. How are you? How were you feeling walking in and soaking all of this in? Uh, I mean, yeah, you could definitely use the kid walking into a video game <laughs> store, but also just kind of, you know, as a stud, person who has studied games and made games, it's just. Suddenly you're right there next and you you have your own booth right next to these big companies that are like well-known all throughout the world. And you're like, holy crap, I'm just this <laughs> tiny little university and I'm just showing off this this tiny game I made. And they're, they're presenting all of their big stuff. In this tiny booth also. We, we, didn't, we didn't have the football-sized <laughs> yeah. booths. We had just a little booth. Yeah. But it was, it was definitely incredible and it was just – it was really exhilarating to be there and to – and to see all these other game studios. And we even had quite a f- few people pass by our booth. Um, I, I mean, we had a couple of people from Nintendo pass over, and they're like, oh, are you making a game? And they take a look at it, and it's, it's just really cool to be there yeah. and have all these you know, these big shots looking at us. So obviously you won first place. Did they give you any type of specific feedback other than here's first prize? I didn't hear any. But they did <laughs> give so us a free T-shirt, which was awesome. That's nice. So E3 champions. Yep. All right. So having having experienced this, and is it was this your first time going to E3 for both of you? Yes. yes. It was okay. actually a childhood dream come true. Really? Yeah. Since I was young, I wanted to go E3. Uh, since I've been in school, I haven't really had time to think. But yeah. then whenever Especially... we were going to E3, I was like, man, like, where is – a little bit younger, I I always wanted to make it to E3, and here I am. That's so awesome. So I'm curious to know uh, how this whole process has affected your career goals and your vision going forward. So similar to what Chris has said, I for a long time have just focused on film. I wanted to go to DreamWorks or Pixar or Disney, um, and I kind of haven't even thought about video games as a potential position. I, I came onto this video game just to model uh, a little bit because modeling is the same across both platforms. Uh, in doing this and then seeing E3 and going to the Riot presentation that we went to, I 
I'm considering video games more as as a potential future. That's huge. Going into this more as animators and then deciding, you know, maybe I'll give this video game thing another look. Well, our our professors are always telling us, you know, hey, there's a game project. There's not just the film project. Give it a try. Give it a try. And it's like they have to pull an arm and a leg just to get us over there sometimes. But sure. I'm glad that they did because now we have, you know, all this cool stuff that we can show off. And especially if we want to get a, a job in games, you know, when we're going out to apply for those jobs, we can, you know, put on their E3 we want it. What a great lesson just for anybody in any field, too. You know, like, keep an open mind. Maybe there's another field within your uh, within your job that mm-hmm. you could really enjoy that you just haven't taken another look at. And I think that's very important, too. And it, it, I think you can relate it to different fields because, you know, we come in and we just have that, you know, we want to work at Disney. We want to work at Pixar right. kind of mentality. But, you know. Nobody comes out of any school expecting to get the top position at the <laughs> location of their choice. And the game industry is a really booming industry right now where it's really hard to get into films. And so just being able to take a step back and you know try our hand out at different things, we were able to find something that we loved that wasn't – you know that was a, a really possible goal. And it wasn't just you know we we're so focused-minded on just one goal. Yeah. Well, again, congratulations to both of you. It sounds like such a fun experience, and it sounds like you both have bright futures. And speaking of fun experiences, Cole and I, whenever we interview people on screen cleaning, we we, we try to instill some moments of levity, and at times we've... We've had games, and uh, we're going to play a little game here today. We're going to play Name That Tune, but I'm going to let Cole explain the unique spin we've got on this game here today. Let's rock. Let's rock today. So we are going to (laughs) continue the video game slash rock and roll theme that you guys have brought to our show with the video game and play Name That Tune, but the twist is that their video game tunes that we're naming that are being covered in a rock and roll style. Oh. <laughs> so this is like heavy guitar playing these 8-bit kind of themes. So see if you can recognize them in that way. Thank you for uh, playing that Jack Black clip from School of Rock. It was for you, Jeffrey. See, if any of these clips have anything to do with movies, I'm pretty sure I'm going to win. But if they're mostly video games, I will be in last place. For sure. Well, it's good that you've accepted it now. That way there's no <laughs> tears later. All right. All right. So we're going to start off. um, I'm going to play about three seconds of a song, and then you buzz in, and the first to buzz in, I'll say your name so the people at home know who's winning, and you can give us your guess. All right? So here's the first one. And that was Jedi first. Yes. By a hair. Mario. Ooh. Can you be more specific? I can. Mario 2. Mario 2 is the correct answer. Very good. I remember the turnips. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, playing that game after playing the first Mario Brothers, it was really weird because the game is just so bizarre compared to the first one. Always played as Peach so I could fly. Or Daisy. <laughs> oh, remember. yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. Peach That's that could kind of float a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Luigi could jump a little bit higher. Um, Mario was just kind of even keeled. But it was weird with, like, the eggs and the vials of formula that you can, you know, go to the next level with. Crazy game. Interesting. And there you go. That is our first one. Mario 2. Good job, Jedi. Okay. Second. (laughs) Now Chris is ready. He knows he's got to be fast. All right. Second one. I've got that. Jeffrey. That is from Angry Birds. (laughs) 
It is. Yes. Oh, I never played that with the sound on. But to be fair, that was made into a movie. But I recognized it from, <laughs> from the game. From the game. Yes. Okay. And Jeffrey might have the advantage because he has children. Uh, True. Is that why? Well, I've played Angry Birds a lot, but I usually have the music off. <laughs> you can't turn the music on when you're in class playing Angry Birds. Yeah, right? I've always wondered why people are so fascinated with that game. Is it because they just love slinging things, or do they like seeing birds explode in real life? I think it's also the story, you know? Okay. Those little story elements in between. Oh, it really looks it. so good. It's yeah. just it is fun. Pretty. And, you know, that's something you don't think about that game is there's voiceover that goes into that as well. There are people behind a mic that are going like, you know, or whatever noise it is. Okay, Cole. You ready for the next one? Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, gosh. Zelda? Wait a minute. Can we we hear it again? Or is there a longer clip? I can can play a little bit more for you. Yeah, let's play a little more for that. All I can think of is Schools Out by Alice Cooper, or like <laughs> a version of it. It does sound that way when you Gosh. put it in rock and roll, right? Ah, I, I'll, I'll buzz in and just say Guitar Hero. Not quite. Okay. Not at all, actually. So <laughs> what if I were to give you a hint that it starts with a little bit of a choral before it gets to the rock? Hmm. Say if it started with something like... Halo. Can, we, can I just say I think we need to have you sing on every show from now on. We're gonna I, we're gonna plan that. I'll in. second that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you guys know what this is? I think. Oh, Jedi said it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, Halo. it's Halo. It's oh, Halo. Oh, Halo. Because that's that's the most yeah, that's memorable the part of the song. Cole, I couldn't find any rock doing the just corral doing the, thing. Cole, just uh, sing the rest like, of these for us, if you will, Cole. No, thank you. <laughs> Heavy metal scream. Good for you. Okay. All right, so the score for those keeping track is Jedi 2, Jeffrey 1. And Chris with is ready un- for the comeback. With an I'm undisclosed ready. amount of points. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. There we go, Chris. It is Pokemon. It is Pokemon. Pokemon was on Nintendo? It was. Yeah. Wow. Still is. I don't know my Pokemon, I guess. Sorry, that was bad. (laughs) It's Yes, for the Game Boy, and then the Game Boy Color, and the Game Boy Advance, and the Game Boy SP, and the Game Boy DS, Pokemon has been one of Nintendo's longest-running properties. Okay. Way to go, Chris. Way to go, Chris. All right, I have... That's one one I played way too much. So this is a tiebreaker slash for the tie Ugh. slash otherwise. It's a very confusing situation. <laughs> Cruising USA? No, but you're on the right track. Track being the key word. Any other guesses? Play it again, Sam. I can play a little longer version. Jedi? Nah, but it's still that genre of gaming. Wait, what did you guess? I said F-Zero. I've never even heard of that game. That's where Captain Falcon comes from. It's a racing game, and this is also from a racing game. I said Cruisin' first, but I don't... It's not Cruisin' USA or Cruisin'... Cruisin'! 
That was not cold, oh. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what? Maybe we should just ban all singing after this episode. Oh, you got another knows? racing game in your back pocket you can guess? Oh, it kind of sounds like if Miami Vice were a racing game. <laughs> I can't think of any others right now other than Gran Turismo, but I know it's not Gran Turismo. No. I have no and idea. Not, not I'll start naming some off. Need for Speed. No. Uh, what is the other one? Rush uh, 64. No. It's N64. So it's a racing game. Mario Kart. On the yes. What? Yes. Oh my goodness. I didn't. I didn't have that game. Wow. I for Super Nintendo, but not. How is this Mario Kart? So I mean, it sounds different with guitar, right? What game system? This is N64. Oh my goodness. This is Rainbow Road. So this is the final level in every Mario Kart game. Of course it's Rainbow Road. Wow. Is a Rainbow Road, and this is Rainbow Road. It changes the song a little bit each time, but this was the N64. I'm you embarrassed named... I couldn't remember Mario Kart existed. <laughs> you named the one <laughs> racing game that you know, and uh, and you get it right. Wow. Oh, there you go. How lucky am I? I think Jedi teed you up for that one, Jeff. I don't know if That's true. you could have guessed it without so the racing. Should hints. we crown Jedi the winner of this Name That Tune game? I think we can. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Jedi. And really, congratulations to Jedi and Chris and your entire team that took part in Beatboxers. What an exciting thing to have on your resume that you won first place at the E3 competition. And uh, we just want to thank you guys for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. Their names are Jedi Lion and Chris Fish. And uh, I want to tell our audience one more time where they're going to be able to find your game for free. So it'll be on the Steam Marketplace, right? Yep, Steam Marketplace in about a month. And I heard Seth, our professor over this game project, that he's planning to get it up onto our website at some point also. So if you go to BYU Animation... Um, you can Google that. I don't know the exact address. I think it's animation.byu.edu. Okay. So. Uh, he's hoping to get it up on there, maybe even earlier. Well done, gentlemen. So if you're listening to this and you're a little bit classical or you're a little bit rock and roll, look for that video game for free that you can play. It's called Beatboxers. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning. <laughs> BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. It is our privilege to head on over to BYU Sports Nation, where Jerem is currently sitting. And I I hear that Spencer is jetting his way over there right now because he's not going to want to miss today's discussion. Jerem Jordan, how are you, my friend? Hi, Jeffrey. So I've got to know, I need you to do me a favor because I... Am not a uh, a World Cup fan, which is a, a crime, I'm sure, to some people. But I'm hoping that you've watched at least enough of it to to fill us in on what's happening. Yeah, I I love the World Cup. I think it's very fun. Uh, so today is the first day in a couple of weeks where there's no games. So pool play is over. The 32 teams have all played three games, and it's now down to 16. And the knockout round uh, begins tomorrow. The Sweet Germany 16? is out. Yeah, 16 Whoa. teams left. Germany's out. They won the World Cup in Brazil four years ago. That was a big shocker. Argentina barely got in. Uh, and then we randomly selected a team uh, to root for. We picked Croatia. Um, it, it was drawn out of a hat. And Croatia, I believe, is the only team uh, to win all three of their pool play games. Hey, that's awesome. So 
we felt pretty good about that. Hmm. Was there any and underhandedness the going will on win there? the World Cup. You heard it here first. Are you serious? Oh, wait. They're not in it. My bad. Oh, okay. Never mind. Scratch that. Bad info. <laughs> Man, so you guys have so some sort of a sixth sense that you can predict. Can I? Can we go someplace together? I won't say what place. Orem for lunch? Uh, sure. <laughs> oh, more I, exotic? Uh, and I'm predicting uh, the odds of fun are quite high. Yeah, wherever we go, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Uh, we should go to Croatia because that's our team. Yikes! What happens if they lose though? That's not one of those countries where people take things a little too far if their team loses, is it? Uh, I don't know. There's uh, of course the famous story if we're gonna get real of the two Escobars in Colombia in '94. Uh, but yeah, hopefully it's not that serious. Uh, it's just a game, people. <laughs> so you'll be watching Croatia very carefully. Um, what should we be looking for or looking forward to very carefully on your show coming up here in about eight minutes? You should be looking forward to Spencer Linton. Uh, because he's the hardest working man in showbiz. Nobody ever looks forward to that. East of Hugh Jackman. Really? Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about surprises on the depth chart that Phil Steele came out with. Uh, Brandon Davies will join us in studio. He's back from Lithuania, speaking of Europe. Uh, I've been MVP there, by the way. And champion. Very nice. Mm-hmm. There are more return missionaries back for BYU basketball as well. Hmm. That's yeah. exciting. We'll, we'll tell you the last piece of the Hoops roster who uh, got home from his mission trip yesterday. Can you <laughs> and, and much, much more. Wow. That is a cool. packed, packed show. The new men's volleyball assistant will be in studio as well. His name's Micah Naone. I was a little disappointed when they lost to, was it Irvine or Long Beach? In the NCAA tournament? Yes. Uh, UCLA. What? Why was I thinking Irvine or Long Beach? Uh, Long Beach State did win the national championship. Oh, there you and go. And they'll probably win it next year, too. Hmm. Long Beach State got lucky. They didn't have BYU in the NCAA tournament. The Cougars had knocked the 49ers out the previous two years. So we've only got a couple minutes left, but earlier on the show, and I'm sure you haven't heard this, but Cole and I ranked the five Jurassic Park films. We did a late review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Have you guys seen that one yet? I went to go see it Tuesday. The audio didn't work in the IMAX. Yeah, but what? you got I gave everybody two passes. I'm going yeah. Monday. Yeah. Sweet. IMAX luxury. That worked, out, that so worked out for the best. That worked yes. out for the best for you. We actually rented a different movie and watched it. Like, I was on a date with my wife, and we were hanging out with another couple in our neighborhood, and we just went to our house and watched a different movie. Well, we all know what the best one is, so give me your worst one that you've actually seen. Jurassic Park 3. Really? I haven't even seen it. Adam's wow. Jurassic Park series? So my wife didn't even know Jurassic Park 3 existed. That's how bad it was. <laughs> uh, I actually put The Lost World Jurassic Park, so Jurassic Park 2, as my worst. Really? Absolutely. Like Vince Vaughn, huh? Yeah. It was boring, and uh, it. I felt like I was watching a couple hours of deleted scenes. Jurassic Park 3 was the one for me because... It just went away from everything that Jurassic Park was, and it just really bothered me because I really like Jurassic Park. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't true to the storyline. It was kind of like the Last Jedi. Come on, you didn't Wars. like you didn't like the talking raptor. <laughs> Who didn't like a talking raptor? <laughs> What's worse, a talking gorilla in the Congo or the talking raptor? Oh, Congo was bad. Congo, Anaconda, Lost World were all made within like three years of each other. Yeah. I want to say I don't think this is a coincidence. 
Hmm. Well, it sounds like, Spencer, you need to see Jurassic Park 3. And, uh, you know... You uh, don't. Don't see it. Oh. <laughs> well, waste of time. Use that extra ticket and take Spencer to go see Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Idea, that is a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys make the arrangements and get ready for your show and have a great time. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Hef. Okay. Uh, they need to go see that movie because... If you've been listening, I ranked Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom as the second best in the Jurassic Park franchise. However, as Cole pointed out, there's kind of a big wide gap between the first film and the rest of the films. They all come in a distant, distant second. Anyway, it's about that time of the show where we uh, do a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. So this week on Panning for Good, we're going to do something a little different. Usually we try to put a big old spotlight on a particular actor, a movie, a comedian, anything that is involving entertainment that is good that you might have to look a little harder for. This time we're going to give you a preview of what is coming up on next week's episode of Scream Cleaning. Usually on the show, we do our darndest to not only put a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment, but we try to provide parents with forms of entertainment that are really appropriate for them to enjoy as families, for their kids, right? Something that uh, they wouldn't blush over. Well, next week, we are actually going to be talking about kids' entertainment that parents can really enjoy. I One of my big beefs with 2018, as far as entertainment is concerned, is that there just really has not been all that much children's entertainment when you go to the movie theaters. There's really nothing for kids to see. Once in a blue moon, you'll get a kid's movie. But what's even more difficult for these studios to do, it seems, is to put out a kid's movie that is actually good. The one that I can think of so far from this year is Incredibles 2. But next week, we are going to be talking about kids' shows that parents will actually enjoy, that are that good, that parents will want to sit down and watch with their children. And who knows, maybe we'll even give you some ideas, parents, for shows that are meant for kids, but that you would watch on your own without your kids. I know that there are a couple of these series that I'll be mentioning that I plan on finishing on my own, but that's going to be next week on the show, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Screen Cleaning, where we do our best each and every week to give you the best in entertainment. That's going to do it for this week. Coming up next, we've got BYU Sports Nation here on BYU Radio. BYU Sports Nation. 